Hey there. So, this episode of the World Hopper's Guide is going to be taking a slightly different tack. Uh, instead of looking at uh, another in-universe phenomenon or timeline or sort of just going down a list, I want to take a little bit of time to explore the actual writing process a little bit and, and the methods that Brandon Sanderson uses to make um, some of his most compelling stories. Uh, this might work. It might not. Either way, it's just me in an empty room talking into the void anyway, so who cares? So, Brandon Sanderson has written a lot of characters, and I mean a lot. But I want to dig into one of Brandon's apparently favorite character archetypes, and, and one of mine as well, specifically the idea of the underdog hero, almost like the underdog sports story as he puts it, but but this one hero who, against all odds, comes out victorious in the end. So specifically, we can look at Prince Raiden from Brandon's first and one of his most underrated works, uh, Elantris, as well as Kaladin Stormblast, one of the protagonists from the Stormlight Archive and the focus of the first book, The Way of Kings. So... While I like Elantris, I'll say up front that it's obvious that Cal is a much more complex, well-written character than Raiden. We get a lot more time on his flashbacks, and he's got a heartbreaking depression arc in a much longer book. In a lot of ways, he's a second draft of Raiden, written a decade after the fact. But I, I want to look at the structural underpinnings that make both characters compelling, as well as the specific aspects of Kaladin's arc that make him overall a stronger character in The Way of Kings. Now, both of these characters can look on the surface of things to be sort of bog-standard and boring, and that sort of character work is often a criticism leveled at Sanderson's books. I don't think that's true. I think that's crazy. But they're both very competent, uh, morally good characters who are always trying to do the right thing. But but in a universe full of Dalinars and Hrothans and Kelsiers, how do they compete? In his podcast, Writing Excuses, Brandon often discusses the idea of three sliding scales that make a character interesting, and those are sympathy, competence, and proactivity. That is, how relatable is somebody, how good are they at what they do, and how much do they drive the events of the story. Harry Potter, for example, is sympathetic and proactive, and he mainly struggles with competence throughout the series. Sam Gamgee is uh, very much sympathetic on a huge scale, not very competent, but uh, he does the job. Captain America is very high on all three things. The Joker is competent and proactive and not very sympathetic. And it's it's messing around with those sliding scales that can make you sort of appreciate a character in various ways. Generally, when it comes to these sliding scales, you want to have them at varying levels. You can mess around with them to have varying levels of sympathy. For example, a low, a very not competent character can be very proactive and that can be interesting. Uh, or a very competent character can be a little less sympathetic and still be interesting. It's it's messing around with those scales that gets a, a unique character. So how do our two protagonists fall on these scales, and how does Brandon show us that at the very beginning? For Kaladin, he does a very simple trick. He shows us the character through the eyes of another. This is an interesting structural start for the story, where our first non-prologue character in The Way of Kings comes from Sen, a random nobody in Amaram's army. Through Sen, uh, we get a lot of interesting information, the nature of the war, some of the world building, but we also get to see Kaladin through the eyes of a newcomer soldier. We see that he protects the young, and he is incredibly adept with a spear. A quick quote from, uh, from the book itself. Uh, his foe raised a spear high, a looming silhouette against the stark blue sky, ready to ram it into Sen's heart. And then, he was there. Squad leader, Stormblast. Kaladin's spear came as if out of nowhere narrowly deflecting the blow that was to have killed Sen, 
Calvin set himself in front of Sen alone, facing down six spearmen. He didn't flinch. He charged. It happened so quickly. Calvin swept the feet from beneath the man who had stabbed Sen. Even as the man fell, Calvin reached up and flipped a knife from one of the sheaths tied about his spear. His hand snapped, knife flashing and hitting the thigh of the second foe. That man fell to one knee, screaming. A third man froze, looking at his fallen allies. Cowden shoved past a wounded enemy and slammed his spear into the gut of a third man. A fourth man fell with a knife to the eye. When had Cowden grabbed the knife? He spun between the last two, his spear a blur, wielding it like a quarterstaff. For a moment, Sen thought he could see something surrounding the squad leader. A warping of the air, like the wind itself, becoming visible. So this is all... Basically all the stuff that happens right before an enemy shardbearer kills everybody. This shoots up the competence meter to the absolute max, giving us a heroic character who we'll be willing to follow, but it doesn't give us everything. The next scene is Kaladin's point of view as a slave, just an immediate cut. Battered, broken, absolutely helpless, a man who was given into his depression entirely. Cue the sympathy meter for much of this book. This battered, broken man is someone incredibly compelling to follow. In his book, Secrets of Story, Matt Bird, who I believe is a screenwriter, uh, as he puts it, making yourself vulnerable is heroic. Audiences hate it when they're asked to identify with invulnerability. Watching Kalanin, this incredibly competent hero, become this shattered husk of a man does a lot to show us his vulnerability. I mean, something that he faces throughout the entire series, really. He, he's constant struggle with giving up, but uh, it also shows us the positive effect that Syl has upon him. Well, in the way of kings, Kaladin takes quite a bit of time to get to his bridge crew days, though Elantris is a lot shorter and, um, differently paced. You know, at uh, twice the length of most other fantasy debuts. And it starts with Raiden getting tossed into Elantris basically on the second page. Uh, in this case, we've got a snappy line of to begin the story. Prince Raiden of Aralon awoke early that morning, unaware that he'd been damned for all eternity. <laughs> uh, before spending a few paragraphs telling us that he's just a dude who's hungry. And then the maid jumps in, drops a tray, and we cut to the opening titles before, bam, the doors close on Elantris. Sympathy meter up. Even though events so far have been entirely out of his control, from here on out, Raiden is in the driver's seat. As he explores Elantris, the dirt and the grime, he runs into Galadon, whose defeatist attitude contrasts with Raiden's belief that he can do something. Bump up the proactivity meter. So, effectively, in our first scenes, Sanderson has given the audience a character that most of uh, the readers are willing to follow along on their journey, on top of doing like a hundred other things in these scenes. As the story progresses, though, the driving characteristic for both of them is going to be their proactivity. Both of these characters spend the whole story doing things and trying them out, and more importantly, getting punished for it. On writing excuses, um, the idea of try-fail cycles comes up a lot. A character tries something and fails. Then they try something else, and for the most part, fail. Then they try one last desperate attempt when all looks lost at the climax, and generally, after being denied catharsis for the entire story, they generally succeed. That's how stories work. It's the fail part of the cycle that makes us keep reading and keeps the character from feeling like a Mary Sue, a character who is beloved and solves all problems with ease. So let's look at how this is done with Raiden. By his second chapter, we've learned his short-term goal overcome his three opponents in Elantris, Karata, Shaor, and Anden, to create a civilization that won't topple. By his third chapter, we learn his overarching goal, determine what's wrong with the door and fix the Aeons. In keeping with his proactivity, he's making plans and taking actions. He snags a cobbler here, a soldier there, and we watch him put together a society. He's interrupted by Karata, who threatens his men, but he stops her with a compromise. He succeeds, but pays a cost. He allies with her, only to have them assault Anden. 
and just as new Elantris is finally coming together, Serene comes through to throw a wrench in his plans, bringing food which destroys new Elantris's self-sufficiency. They make a plan to trap Shaoor's men, and Salen is made Hoed. Rayadin practices the door, and the door punches him in the face with waves of pain. He's able to fix the door a little and form a disguise, but that disguise is quickly destroyed in front of the entirety of Erlon. He's still accepted, but then the Dakor attack. Through this story, we are carried along by the push and pull of Raiden. Even if he isn't the most complex of characters, his unbridled positivity in the face of terrible circumstances is a perfect example of what Sanderson might call the iconic hero, a Superman-type character who might lack serious flaws, but nevertheless faces challenges that, from the outset, look impossible to overcome. Kaladin, meanwhile, uh, in a lot of ways is a more refined version of Raiden. He's got a richer backstory and a much more nuanced psychology with higher highs and lower lows. His arc is more stretched out, and we spend a good portion of the first section of Way of Kings watching him despair. We see him struggle and struggle, thrown onto bridge four and watching men die around him, hitting him right in the tian. But uh, once that second act hits, uh, that is when he makes a decision to enter the new world, we see him quickly become the proactive hero. We learn his scene-level motivations of keeping his men alive, and then there's the overall questions of honor and duty, uh, which involve his various flashbacks, his relationship with Syl, and burgeoning Windrunner abilities. So he acts. He brings back wounded. Boom. No pay for them, and they're put on chasm duty. He trains his men to use the side carry, to disastrous consequences that get him strung up in a high storm, and he only barely survives with the realization that bridgemen are bait, bringing him closer to the wretch and also dooming his men to chasm duty. Given that, he trains them to fight so they can escape. And as they continue to survive, the team gets put on permanent bridge and chasm duty. They begin to use the carapace armor to distract the Parshendi right up until the tower, at which point we reach the climax of the story. So what does this do for us as a reader and writer? Uh, we've got our competent, likable, proactive characters, and their actions drive us through the story. They make plans, take actions, and face consequences. Raiden uses his competence as a leader, Kaladin as a soldier and a healer. It's incredibly compelling, and the beauty of the formula is that even when you know how it works, it still works. An important factor in keeping these characters compelling is the concept of choice. Both Raiden and Kaladin have a literal pit. For Raiden, the pool on the mountain. For Kaladin, it's the, the literal cliff that uh, men commit suicide on. Both represent the easy way out, the abandonment of responsibility. As Brandon describes the pool near Elantris in the annotations, the pool represents giving in. Though it's giving in to peace instead of pain, it's still an admittance of defeat. I've mentioned over and over again that pain has no power against one who doesn't give in to it. I don't see why the peace should be any different. If you can resist one, then you can resist the other. Now, interestingly, we'll see a lot of this uh, reflected in Dalinar's arc as well, reinforcing the idea that Sanderson likes to refine his character arcs and make them even better and more powerful. Both Raiden and Kaladin choose to continue survival, even though it's hard. But while Raiden pretty much consistently stays proactive throughout the entire story, and is only really tempted by the pool when he becomes Hoed, Kaladin is actually tempted pretty early in The Way of Kings, and arguably it's the first climax of the mini-trilogy that Brandon plots within each one. He stands at the edge of the pit, and still hands him the Blackbane, and in that moment, he makes a choice to save Bridge 4. Both men try and fail to build their respective groups out of nothing, all while refusing to take the easy way out. And they've also got their own plots and figuring out their own magic system, solving the mystery of the door or Kaladin's uh, Windrunner abilities. These follow a little more linear progression, and they interact with the story at various points. Most importantly, the climax. So, we reach the grand finale of both stories. This is when stuff hits the fan and when all hell breaks loose. Dakor monks on the streets, High Prince betrayals left and right, and our two protagonists are facing the final battle and their final try-fail cycle. This is what makes or breaks a story and a character arc. 
the climax, the moment of catharsis, and that is what Brandon is really, really good at. So Raiden at the beginning of the story is a pretty cool dude. He ends the story as a pretty cool dude. Uh, the story is mostly about a mystery more than an overarching arc for him. Most of his progression is watching him solve problems as they come up. But nevertheless, though he does make progress, it all falls apart by this third act. Everything appears to be lost. Dilaf's Dakor are assaulting Erlon and Elantris. Raiden has finally succumbed to being a Hoed. Things could literally not be worse. And it's at this moment when it all comes together. The various pieces of the mystery that have been set up over the course of the story come together to form the solution. And Raiden has one more choice between two things he desperately wants. Freedom of the pool and an ultimate acceptance of his Hoed status. Or a desperate attempt to fix the city, which will doom him to an eternity of pain if he fails. His choice to return to the world is his climax to the story, and it's the moment of catharsis that makes all of his prior struggles worth the read. That all said, I think this is where the Stormlight Archive has a little more meat on the bone. Uh, Kaladin's goal of escape is finally right in front of him as Sadius' army moves off, but the overarching theme of honor hangs over him as he watches the betrayal happen. In this case, it's Dalinar who is in his all-is-lost moment. Uh, basically, his army is about to die, while Kaladin is on the brink of everything he's ever wanted. His two desires are put into direct conflict. Save his men, the goal he's been seeking for almost 400,000 words, or become a man of honor, the change he needs. The kind of person who his father always spoke of, the man who does make the steps to be a good person because somebody has to. Ultimately, it's his choice to risk his men and save Dalinar that gives him the power to say the oaths and become radiant. A huge moment of emotional catharsis for the reader because we understand the good and bad consequences of his actions, and we're standing up and cheering for him as he does it. So there you have it. Uh, at their core, Raiden and Kaladin's stories are simple but effective. They are both fundamentally good people placed in abysmal situations, and it's their proactivity, their refusal to sit back and let things happen, and their competence that make them both compelling to watch as they slowly progress toward the magical heroes that they both become. Ooh, I hope this was an interesting uh, off episode as I write up some more uh, regular uh, World Hopper content. Uh, there's something wonderful about understanding how Sanderson manages to make a character work and, and show both his skill and his progression at the art of writing these great narratives that we all love. I hope you enjoyed, and thanks for listening.